Today on The Black Goat, we discuss how academia will be different this upcoming semester or quarter, and a letter about being the younger female partner of a rising male star in one's own field. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. It's good to see the two of you after uh, we've been on, on quite a bit of a hiatus. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's uh, good to see you too. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, I think the last time we recorded, Samin was already in Australia, so we're getting used to being spread out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having to write two days as our recording dates from now yeah. on. <laughs> Yeah. All the all the complications. We switched to Zoom instead of Skype. Uh, we'll see see how that goes. Um, I haven't broken you guys of talking about the seasons yet, but well, yeah, it. that we'll 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 get the days down first and the seasons down yeah. next. Yeah, yeah. So people, so listeners may be wondering why we're on hiatus, and and the answer, I think. It's interesting that we never, I don't think we ever actually talked about going on hiatus, but um, so what happened was that uh, my father passed away at the beginning of May. And I think you guys, I don't know, I actually, we haven't talked about this. You guys just didn't bug me about recording the podcast. Like you didn't make me ask you to, cause I was not in a headspace to record a podcast. And I don't know if you guys just knew it. I don't know if you guys were like messaging each other. Like should we? I think I we did. I I think we did exchange one message where I I think I messaged Samin and said, like, I guess we just wait until Sanjay approaches us about recording the next podcast, right? And she was like, yes. (laughs) I think that was all the discussion. Well, that was, yeah, that was really, really nice of you guys. Because I, I don't know, like, I remember... So this was the beginning of May and it was, it was unexpected. Um, My, my dad was, you know, had some health problems like a lot of older people do, but there was, this was very unexpected. It was very sudden. And so I was not prepared for it. And, you know, afterwards thinking about recording a podcast, I remember even a few weeks after I was just like, I am not in a place to like, perform right now to, to, Mm -hmm. you know, be recording and and trying to sound interesting to anybody (laughs) or any of that stuff. Um, So it's been a couple of months now. And, uh, you know, I guess I'm in a different place. But it, it was, you know, so this happened, my, my, my dad, I'm in Oregon, my dad was in New Jersey. And so one of the many especially awful things, which I think a lot of people have experienced in the last few months is that I was not able to travel to, Mm -hmm. so I was not able to personally attend my own father's funeral. I wasn't able to be there for my mom, uh, in person. Um, and, uh, you know, I know some, some people listening have probably lost people close to them because that's something that happens and, and it's been happening a lot more unfortunately because of the pandemic and other people might be in that situation someday and i, I don't know all i can say is it fucking sucks um <laughs> i don't i don't know if i have any like grand wisdom uh, there's no like i don't know like sometimes you want to make meaning out of things and a lot of it just there was no meaning to be made like it just it sucked and it mm-hmm. was i don't know um, on top of, you know, the loss, the, the, like, not, not having the guidance of ritual and tradition to walk you through mourning when the last thing you can do is figure things out for yourself. Um, yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah, like I said, I know a lot of people are going through that right now. Did you try to replace the funeral in some way, Sanjay? So I know that I I have a a friend who had a friend die during the, the epidemic, and this person was like around our like around my age, um, and they ended up having like some kind of funeral ceremony on Zoom, and I remember thinking like, um, what a bizarre experience to have. I mean, the way that it was like described to me was that 
obviously that's it's like a a very like clumsy way to mourn but then also i think it allowed people to come from um places that might otherwise not have come did your dad have something like that yeah so we you know we had to make all these decisions really quickly because you know um yeah you know you, you can't like sort of say oh i'll take a month to think about it or whatever so what what we ended up doing was we had a very small funeral ceremony that was just immediate family who were in the area and, and you know some some close relatives who were sort of physically close by and i was on facetime for it mm -hmm. which was its own very for the actual funeral itself um which was a very strange and uh dissociative experience it was in some ways it was good my my wife and son were with me and so they could participate um and i was glad i would rather have done that than nothing at all like it would have been incredibly weird for me to just be like okay i know this is happening and i have no connection to it but we decided not to make it a larger thing the actual funeral itself um and i think because it just felt too quick to figure out how to do something meaningful. And so, you know, we, we still haven't figured out, like we've talked about when it's possible trying to gather people in person for some kind of a remembrance or memorial. That plan may end up changing because we don't know the time course. And, you know, if, if, it, if that means waiting years, like, I don't know when it's gonna be safe to travel again to, to have people come and so, yeah, so I just don't know. I've been to, uh, so I've not been to a Zoom funeral other than the one I just mentioned. I, I've been to um, a Zoom baby naming ceremony, which was, so it was a positive occasion. It was a jo joyful occasion. And it was actually managed to be quite meaningful. Um, mm -hmm. it, and it had that aspect you're mentioning that people, like this was not something I would have been able to travel to in person, but it was for an old friend. And, and mm -hmm. you know, it was really cool to be able to like be part of that and to see like people from literally all around the world being part of this ceremony. And so I think there is a way that like, you know, and maybe this will get easier for people to do as they just, this was also like, we hadn't been in social distancing that long. And, you know, there's an interesting, uh, not to like completely now, I'm going to totally nerd out, but there, there's, uh, um, you know, a really interesting theory in computer mediated communications about how, you know, there's these like old fashioned views that you sort of lose, it's like, when you lose channels, you lose information. And I think there's a, you know, more contemporary view that's like, people learn how to do what they want to do through a medium. And, you know, you can think of examples like emojis as a mm -hmm. sort of simple example of, of how people have learned how to express emotion to take the place of nonverbal, blah, blah, blah. So, mm -hmm. so I think like as the world goes on and we continue to have to be in this state, maybe we'll get better at how to do these kinds of important things yeah. over, over video. But at the time it was like, it didn't feel that way. I didn't have any models and I was, none of us were in a place where we could like invent something meaningful on the spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get better at it, but I wonder, and one thing you said really strikes me that you felt like it was like a dissociative experience. And I wonder about that. Like, I feel like there's something that's to me is still surreal about everything since the pandemic started. And I have these moments where I feel like one day I'm going to wake up and it's all going to have been a dream. Mm -hmm. And so then I wonder with grief or something like that, if I, and I apologize if this is an insensitive question, but I would, I feel like I would be worried that it still hasn't really hit me yet or that there's going to be another wave of it when I can do the rituals that I associate with yeah. an ending like that. No, um, that's not, because, yeah, um, that's not insensitive at all. I mean, I, so the, the funeral itself was at moments associative and at moments cut right through that and was was very and it was it was it ended up being very meaningful to me in in a number of ways um uh and so like i said i was glad i did that but but no it it um i can't remember i might have even said this in a text to you Samin, but like the 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 whole metaphor of flatten the curve it feels a little bit like that's what what's happened to the grieving process like we have these rituals and traditions that 
walk you through grieving and they give you opportunities to be with other people and to say things and to do things. And it feels like, yeah, that that's in smaller pieces getting spread out over a longer period of time. Um, and, and I don't, I don't know exactly because I, I think it's an ordinary part of grieving that things come back to you and you have, mm -hmm. they're stretched out and everything. So I don't actually know, um, to what extent this is just me attributing normal grieving to, to what's going on, but it has very much been like that where, you know, they're, you know, you're going through the motions of life and then something hits you and then you're going through and something hits you and those something hits you moments get further apart the longer you go, but they still keep happening. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, so no, I, there were things like I wrote, uh, I did the most of the writing of my dad's obituary. I wrote it with my mom and sister, but I did a lot of it in part because that was a way for, with me not being there, that was a way for me to sort of engage with my emotions about it. Um, and, you know, so there were, there were things like that, that, uh, that, uh, um, you know, have been, have been meaningful, um, and, or just, you know, that have been part of the process, but it's, yeah. Um, you know, we, normally we have a script for how you grieve and it's, I mean, script maybe is a little too strong. It's not scripted, but it's like, we have sort of guidance and some of that is still in place, but a bunch of it is not. Did you have to do um, other parts of your job around that time, Sanjay? Were you teaching? I was, I was very fortunate that the people I work with uh, gave me space and stepped up. So my department head was like, take as much time as you need. Um, I happened to be teaching a course that somebody else uh, in my department is also teaching a section of. And so Caitlin Fozzie, uh, um, one of my colleagues was like, yep, I will step in and do whatever you need me to do. And, um, and she ended up, she let me use some of her lecture materials and did some other stuff. And, and another colleague of mine, like I had something due for a committee I'm chairing and he was like, I will take care of this for you. And so I was really fortunate, um, uh, to be, to have people in my life who, in my professional life who care and and who stepped up like that um you know and it, it is like this is another thing like i've heard people say this before but i just don't fully appreciate how there's the the grieving and then on top of which there's to to just be like completely sort of almost trivializing it or trite or whatever like there's so much fucking paperwork when somebody dies um mm -hmm. and you know the laws in new jersey are really weird so like you know, we like, when do you notify banks? And, you know, for my mom, she had joint banking accounts and my sister and I are trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, and there's these, this weird law in New Jersey that they can freeze half of an account if it's a joint account to make sure like you aren't dodging taxes or whatever. And so there's just all this weird shit that we had to navigate afterwards. And so you just, you have, you know, and, and, the, the will and all this other stuff and, and just, you know, um, so you, you, you know, you're grieving and then just the world throws like a ton of paperwork, um, at you. And, you know, we've been told like, it'll be, it'll be years before everything's settled and that that's like a not unusual part of it. And it's just sort of nuts that we've set up our society in a way that that's how things go, you know? So anyway, um, yeah, that's so that 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 was our hiatus. <laughs> that was why we were on hiatus, and and you know, I I I don't know if anyone's actually going to listen to this. Uh, they may have written us off by now. It's been a few few months. Uh, um, they're probably all like, "Everything hurts is my jam," which you know, it's my jam too. So you know, that's that's cool. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks yeah. to all the other podcasts for picking up the slack. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, maybe uh, maybe we should move on with the podcast, and should we uh, read our letter? We've got a, a, a good one. For this yeah, episode. we have a good letter today. Yeah, yeah. let's read our letter. Um, okay, Dear the Black Goat, I am, as of yet, a nobody, um, being early in my PhD, while my partner is a young PI who, by all supposedly objective measures of productivity, is extremely successful. 
Our research interests have large overlaps, and we are the kind of nerdy people for whom there could be nothing more romantic than inspiring each other intellectually and collaborating on projects together. So far, we have kept our official collaboration focused on side projects. His students should never compete with me for contributing to a project, and it also seems important that my main work is independent of his. What I worry about is the future, and particularly the prospects of managing people's perceptions of how our relationship and our careers overlap. He is the more ambitious of the two of us, not only due to age, and I will certainly follow him to wherever he gets an ideal job offer. My current dream is to be his postdoc when I finish my PhD, or else to do an independent postdoc but become a permanent employee in his lab afterwards. I know that the way the situation fits with gender roles is enough to make a lot of people want to throw up. Assuming that at some point we base our degree of collaboration purely on what we think will produce the most meaningful work and not on career slash reputation concerns, what can we both do now and later to reduce the extent to which people think of me as being a leech benefiting from being the attractive younger woman of, um, sorry, the attractive younger woman of choice of a genius? Some demographics, he is only five years older. We are both psychologists, though to make the gender stereotype thing worse, he also has a very strong computational background. Um, we are currently in Europe, but consider Europe and North America uh, both possible for various stages of the future. I love my life, but gender stereotypes make it so much more complicated. Sincerely, awkward academic spouse, AKA quotes that woman. Um, I have a lot of reactions to this letter. Um, one of my reactions is that like, I feel like one of the things we talk about often in academia is that um, people should be uh, free to break free of the stereotypes um, that apply to their groups. Um, and then sometimes maybe we don't talk as much about the stigma of like fitting um, into a really stereotypic role. Um, and so this person sort of articulates that fear that, you know, that people would see her role in the situation is like so stereotypical that it would like make them want to throw up. Um, and I mean, I guess if we were in a system where, um, where women were really like free to do what they wanted or people were free to do what they wanted, um, maybe they wouldn't have to worry about that reaction. Although I think this situation is, is complicated. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very, direct example of stereotype threat, right? And like that she explicitly says, I'm, you know, that's the, that's her question to us is like, how do I navigate feeling like I'm fulfilling this or feeling like other people are gonna see me as fulfilling this this gender stereotype? Um, Can, yeah. I would play devil's advocate and argue <laughs> it's not just about stereotypes. So mm -hmm. I, I won't deny that definitely part of my knee-jerk reaction is influenced by um, the fact that it fits with stereotypes, and I think I should question that and challenge myself on that reaction. But I also think there are, independent of the stereotypes but aligned with them, legitimate reasons to worry about people hiring their own spouse as their postdoc yeah. or in their lab. Right. And I, I mean, one thing that stands out to me is like she, she, I think, I don't know if we know if it's a she, this person refers to their partner as a genius. And I could imagine like working in a lab where my PIs, let's say I'm a grad student, my PIs spouse is hired in the lab and let's say it's supposed to be roughly my equal and they refer to the PI as a genius and things like that. And I might not share that view. That's a weird dynamic to be so part I, of and I, have to do that. I took that as she said, uh, um, extent to which people think of me as being a leech benefiting from being the attractive younger woman of choice of genius. I thought that was her putting words in like, Putting she, words in the stereotype affirming person's mouth, not that yeah, she yeah. thinks her partner's right, a genius, right. but that people would sort of say okay. there's this like archetype of the okay. like, you know, male genius and his fawning see, partner yeah, who does yeah. all his, you know, yeah, stuff for him or whatever. Probably a fair interpretation. Yeah. So some of my point still stands that there are legitimate reasons to worry about the dynamics of a lab where the boss's spouse is supposed to be on par with other people in the lab that creates weird dynamics. I don't think it's necessarily impossible to do well, but it's certainly very, very challenging. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I know that it's been a while since I've looked at, I know that granting agencies have like nepotism rules because, you know, it sounds like right now they're, they're being very careful 
to avoid like only doing side projects so that because that is one of the one of the many reasons why you know faculty student relationships are problematic is is it can create you know it can create the perception that somebody's getting preferred treatment over others or whatever or can create the reality of it too um that's not the only reason obviously but um uh, so it can, it's, you know, concern in addition to being exploitative of the student that it can also affect other students around. Um, so it sounds like they're avoiding that right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, the part of the question is, so the, the underlying, the sort of, the, I think the issue you're getting at, Samin, is like the, there, there's both, there's the sort of reputational stereotype, that level of the question, and then there's the actual power and financial arrangement side of the question and so it's certainly possible to have an arrangement in the future to settle into an arrangement where they each have a well-defined role and you know she's the the lab manager or the the you know research scientist running operate she's doing operations and he's doing the lone genius bullshit whatever but you know mm -hmm. it's certainly possible to come to a stable arrangement where they have carved out roles but, but it might be that the path from here to there has these risks of her being up for positions that she should have to compete for and so that they're going to have to think about how to manage that transition to that mm -hmm. right it's something that's kind of interesting to me is um, that the letter writer expresses this um, concern of being seen as a leech benefiting from her role, um, but also in some ways expresses like, um, like sort of just an acknowledgement that she does expect to benefit from being this person's partner um, in a way that I think is like sort of uh, self-aware and um, like frank um so like her expressions of being interested in being his um his postdoc or his employee i mean surely she recognizes that that would be like a benefit that she would get because that because she's this person's partner um yeah i mean one thing that i wondered as i was reading was how you might like might be able to avoid that kind of power dynamic so i wonder if this person feels like they wouldn't be able to be um hired in like a spousal hire position um, as an alternative to being like an employee in her partner's lab. Yeah, I get, part of what's complicated about this, because I have these two frames that are kind of competing. One is the sort of like nepotism frame, but the other is the dual career frame. And mm -hmm. it, I mean, it sounds like they want to work together and collaborate together. And so there's, mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, it's like, you know, when it, when there are dual career couples, I think it's really important to avoid the like, oh, you only got this job because your spouse got it, whatever, mm -hmm. blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. Like it's really important in academia, both for us to actually create jobs around the fact that people marry other academics or partner with other academics and whatever. And, right. and, and also to avoid stigmatizing that because that's incredibly corrosive and unfair. And so, I mean, let's assume that whatever employment arrangement she gets for the sake of argument is is one that is merited with, you know, then then I, I think the the like the idea that she wants to work with him, but not, you know, but in in this sort of way that is in employment terms, you know, uh, not as equals or whatever, but that, she, you know, because she's more junior, because she doesn't want to be a PI, she wants to have a, a different kind of career goal, which is a, for somebody on their own is a perfectly legitimate thing to say, I want to be a project manager, or I want to run operations for a big lab or something like that. We would never say like, that's a problem. It's like, that's a great career. Um, she wants, and she wants to be working with her partner on the same scientific issues. And so I just, I want to be careful to be like, I think there are legitimate nepotism concerns for them to address, but I, I don't want that to bleed over into like a more broad sense that this is an un inappropriate or unfair right. goal for them to have. Like, I, I think it is. I, I, I think it's so like, she's got legitimate career ambitions and she's got a dual career issue and we should, you know, like the world should let them do those things. I don't know. I mean, you guys might disagree. I don't know what you think. I don't know what I think. I think definitely both of those things as individual things are totally legitimate. So wanting to work 
you know, in the same town or even university as your partner, totally legitimate, wanting to be a postdoc or project manager or, you know, non-PI role in research, totally legitimate. I'm not sure how I feel about saying I want an employee role in this specific person's lab um, and also their, my spouse. Is that um, different than, because than, I, I can think of examples, you guys probably can too, of two people who are co-PIs who run a lab together. Mm-hmm. I can think of partner couples that do that and where if you hire one, you have to hire the other. They're a package deal and, and they're, so is that, is, is uh, the fact that this is not about them holding equivalent positions or equivalent whatever ranks in the hierarchy or whatever, is, does that make this somehow different than that? I'd, yeah. I'd want to know about the co-PI thing. Is that actually part of their employment contract that they have to have a joint lab? Or if they split up their labs, they would just both be PIs of their own lab and that would be fine? Like, I would be nervous about an employment, a, a university hiring a couple as a joint lab with co-PIs and they're being like that being the contract that they have to have that employment. In, in the cases I know that's not been the case. Um, but, but yeah, and I think it would, you know, the same thing, I guess maybe it's a little different if she's working for her partner. Um, but I, you know, because those positions often aren't, those are, are, those are often funding contingent or lab contingent positions in the way that like two tenure track faculty would not be. But uh, so maybe that is a difference, but like, yeah, like I, you know, I, I've known a number of academic couples who've run labs jointly, and in some cases they separate. I've, I know at least one that I'm thinking of where they've sort of separated some of their operations because um, their interests have gone in different directions and whatever, and that's been fine. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I, I just it's it's interesting because there's a lot of stuff, and it, I think this does activate a lot of stereotypes about, and and also maybe like there are some elements of this that look like things that, you know, women, some, you know, women have fought not to be presumed to only want these things. Am I phrasing that right? Like, in other words, like, you know, it should be like, there shouldn't be a limit on, you know, you women can't be PIs because blah, blah, blah. But there also shouldn't be an assumption that they have to want that, that, that they can't want a completely legitimate, you know, yeah. career role that's, that's not that. Yeah, I don't know where I come down on this. I think it's really complicated. But as someone, I have a partner who works on very, very similar things to me. And I know that for me, these issues are super fraught. Like, yeah, if I'm going to spend any of my time writing a paper with my partner, I have to think really hard about that because it's time I'm not spending on my grad students or things like that. So. I don't know. I just know that I find it very complicated and mm. messy, but that doesn't mean I would come down against it. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was, I was thinking like maybe it matters whether the um, position that the letter writer had is the same position that's shared by other people in the lab. So like if you were a postdoc and other people were postdocs, um, maybe that'd be more problematic because um, you're like being directly like, compared, I guess, um, to, uh, to other people who don't have the same privilege that you do. But I mean, your example, Samin, highlights the fact that that doesn't have to be the case. Like if you're a postdoc and other people are grad students and you're still like taking the time away from their papers and stuff like that, I think it still presents a conflict. Well, that's a, a really satisfying <laughs> conclusion we came to. Well, we haven't even talked about the question, which was like, how do I manage oh, the yeah, reception? Right. <laughs> um, in some ways, it, the the letter writer doesn't, you know, like we, we've talked about a bunch of things that I don't think the letter writer was asking us. Yeah, right. I think she was saying that I'm fine with this. How do I like keep from being viewed as yeah, I mean, in, it's interesting. You know, lining up with this stereotype? I agree with Alexa, the letter writer sounds really self-aware. And yet I find myself thinking, keep digging in that like introspection and self-reflection because I just think it's so messy that like, it's something you have to constantly reflect on and think really hard about what's fair to everyone else and what's, what's also sustainable if you break up and what's like trying to keep the employment stuff relatively clean from whatever your relationship status and satisfaction happens to be. That's why I asked about like the co-PIs who are hired as faculty, both PIs, both faculty, like I would want the employment contract to have nothing to do with their 
marital or relationship situation. If, if they want to continue being in a relationship, great. If they want to not, if they want to continue mm-hmm. being copiized, great. If they want to not. And that this situation doesn't sound like one where you could neatly separate those things. So again, I'm not I'm doing the same thing you were saying. I'm not answering their question, but I can't, I'm finding myself, this is not good. I need to like figure out how to get past this, not being able to get past, like wanting the author of the letter to keep thinking and grappling with those things. Cause I don't think they're quite yet to the point where they've figured out exactly how to separate them or what. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe part of the answer is like, um, I guess, I guess this was something that I sort of touched on earlier, but it sounds like the letter writer is okay with people knowing that she has like benefited in some ways from like academically or professionally from this partnership. Um, and so it doesn't seem like she necessarily wants to like manage people's perceptions to the point where they think that she has like, has received no benefits. It sounds like she's okay with, but then, um, I, so, so like, I want to push back on that a little, cause that, that feels a lot like telling in a dual career hire the, the quote unquote trailing spouse, like you only got this. Cause like hmm. she, I don't want to rule out that she completely has, deserves and has earned the you know the the opportunity to be a postdoc or a senior scientist or whatever when it when it comes to that point um you know that i think the the like you only got this because you're so-and-so's partner um and i mean that's where like the anti-nepotism rules should step like if they're getting federal funds it's, I, you know, the, the university and the funding agency are going to want to make sure that you know, this person's not just giving a job to someone who's unqualified or whatever. Maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I feel like I'm reacting more to the way she's describing the situation than the situation itself. Like she's saying like, my goal is to be like a person in his lab and work potentially like under him. Um, and she seems, uh, and to follow him. Like it, it just seems like she's saying like, uh, that she would like to receive the the benefit that would come from being his partner in that way. But maybe, maybe I'm sort of like, uh, like blind to my own biases in the way I'm interpreting it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, what I, the way I interpret it was she said the research interests overlap a lot, but she's, not as quote unquote ambitious meaning as he is meaning she doesn't feel like she has to be pi and so i think those two things are like well our research interests overlap i don't need to be like an independent pi we like working together and so we could come to a career arrangement where we work together and where i'm not you know he's the pi that does whatever and i'm the you know hold some other position in the lab and and like Again, the, the way like if she, someone might want and might end up in a career in that kind of a position if they were not working. Oh, yeah. I, I, I guess maybe I'm like expressing it wrong. Like the benefit is that she would be his PI or right. his but, postdoc. Yeah. yeah, I guess what I'm saying is like I don't see that. Maybe, it, maybe we're just disagreeing about benefit. It, it, I don't see that as like an unearned or undeserved benefit no. like it's like a uh they've made this arrangement i don't know right yeah yeah i didn't mean to apply unearned i just i meant to apply like um i am this person's pi because they're my partner um like it seems like they're okay with or is there this person's postdoc because they're my partner it seems like they're okay with that perception and also the per- also the perception that um they're the less ambitious of the partnership um I mean, what I was going to say before was just that, like, maybe it's like it would be helpful to decide um, what you're what you're okay with people thinking and what you really don't want people to think. And then for the things that you don't want people to think, to try to act in ways that suggest that that's not the case. Um, So, like, if you don't want people to think that you're like taking away opportunities from his other students, like set up. A system that prevents that from being the case. But if you're okay with people thinking Love You is the less ambitious academic, then you don't need to worry about managing people's perceptions of who is the more or less ambitious academic. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe part of why I was responding to the benefit is that she describes the thing she doesn't want to be seen as is the leech benefiting from the genius, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, but yeah, yeah no, right. I, yeah. So I think like she doesn't want to be seen as a leech, which I think is a very reasonable thing. Yeah, for yeah, I, I agree. Seen as. I, I definitely um, agree. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe part of what this conversation is telling the letter writer as she's listening to us at some point in the future is it's going to be really complicated, like, <laughs> because people are going to have all these, I think there are some legitimate questions about just making sure that there aren't conflicts of interest that are that are mm -hmm. disadvantaging students who work for this person. I think that's, that's a, and, and so maybe to some extent, just being transparent about the safeguards and limitations is going to be important to make sure that at least the people in the immediate environment, like the students know okay this is how things work these things will go to her these things won't go to her I came in as a student or a postdoc knowing that and that other people in the department um, know that and and have sort of signed off on that as ethically appropriate right that that would be a thing to do I think beyond that like I I guess I don't know like some sometimes these you know I don't know like yeah, the, the I don't know how much people are gonna notice or care. Like, and if she has her own independent things she can point to, as well as the collaborations, I think that very much helps your reputation. You say, like, look, yeah, I'm so and so's partner. Um, I run his lab, uh, but you know, I've also got these own. Here's a list of my accomplishments, and I earned this shit. And don't tell me, you know, my husband just put me on his papers to make things look good or whatever. Mm -hmm, um, right uh yeah so you know keeping some amount of independence or just making sure that that people are able to be aware of it but i, I do think like it's very possible that this is an ongoing issue that she might face that people will you know look could look at this arrangement and and ask like oh did she only get this because of so and so i think that's a really prevalent and uh view in our culture She's going to get both. She's going to get like, maybe she didn't deserve it and she's not good enough. And also she's so much better than this. Why is she settling for this? Right. And that's, what's mm -hmm. hard is she's going to get criticism from both sides. People thinking she's not being ambitious enough and people think she doesn't even deserve what she did get and so on. So I feel for her definitely for that. Yeah. I think my, my most concrete advice is try to think of how, how you would do this if, if your dream job was to work in not your husband's lab, but his colleague's lab. So you like, you really want to work in this department. You really want to work in this role of like lab, you know, product manager or, or postdoc or whatever. And if, and you, there's this person who like really aligns with your interests and you work really well together and you're going to make beautiful research together and then try to make that look as much like it would look if they weren't also your partner as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because I think, yeah, if, I think you, this she would have a lot of the same challenges if that was her dream, right? Like some of this, the second side, the people saying, you know, you should be more ambitious than that. Why are you settling, et cetera, but not the leech part. So yeah, I think there's some, some of that can be addressed by really trying to mimic what performance evaluations, safeguards, blah, 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 you'd have in place for a product manager or postdoc in any lab, making sure you don't cut any corners there when you're, in your spouse's lab the yeah. leech stuff i think it's harder to know how to but yeah i think it's so interesting i keep thinking about family businesses and how i don't know i just i feel like this doesn't come up like it's totally normalized maybe i'm wrong like it seems like pretty normalized to have like a family bakery where it's like oh yeah like there's a couple and like he does the baking and invents all the new cool pastries and she keeps the books and nobody thinks like she's a leech for being the like bookkeeper or, you know or whatever whatever it is like again i'm trying i'm using an example that lines up with gender roles on purpose to, to yeah. sort of mimic that this thing but it's just like there's this weird i guess because in academia the currency is your reputation as being an originator of ideas that's, yeah, that's what point. makes this different that that like where it sounds like the role she's going to have is one where she's going to be doing really important labor of like running studies and, mm -hmm. and doing all the like the things that a, a sort of project manager or a, a you know senior postdoc might do. Um, Does it matter that a bakery is a 
private corporation or I don't know what the right word, whereas a lab depends heavily on public resources. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would think like the investors would care if the bakery, like the if they get a loan from the bank, the bank's going to care a lot about whether this is like a bakery that's going to pay back its make enough money to pay back its loans. So in some in some sense, they might care more about whether it's mm-hmm. run well. But I guess it's a different set of standards for what run, counts as run well. It's not their individual output. It's the whether the bakery. But I think the nepotism stuff matters a lot more if you're using or building on or relying on infrastructure that's public resource. That's I don't know. True. Anyway, we should probably well, move on. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> before we started recording, Simeon um, was like, we could talk for a while about this letter. And that was right. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, uh, sincerely awkward academic spouse, a.k.a. that woman. Um, I I will be super, if you want to write us back, and, and I will be super curious what you think <laughs> of what we've said, or if you want to write us back in a year and tell us how things work. I do out, really appreciate the letter. I, I appreciate the honesty and the yeah, self-awareness. Me too. No, she's going to say... Yeah, she sounds super self-aware and reflective and, and I kind of funny in, in a couple of places too. And I, mm-hmm. I, I would appreciate that. So thank you. Um, yeah, and if, if you are listening and you would like to email us a, a letter, a dilemma, uh, <laughs> we are, uh, you can email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackcoatpod www.theblackcoatpodcast.com, et cetera, et cetera. So for our main topic, if we've left ourselves any time, we wanted to, <laughs> so it's a tiny topic that yeah. doesn't, doesn't really, it's not going to need much time. You know, you know we wanted like, to talk about- what is the future about, of academia? That's yeah, what's the future? Well, it's only the immediate future. Um, we wanted to talk about the, the future. And I guess, I mean, some schools are starting up in August, right? Some semester schools start in the U.S. start in August, um, others in September. But yeah, just sort of, uh, so this might be like a few weeks away for some people listening. Um, it's about and in Australia, ago. our second semester starts August 3rd. Oh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's day, It's going to be days away by the time this podcast comes out. But um, yeah, so so just sort of, you know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, and I think the two most prominent things are, of course, the, the pandemic and the social distancing that's come out of that. And then the other, uh, um, the other thing that's been very much on our minds in the U.S., and I think to, to no small degree in the rest of the world, is uh, um, the protests and uh, um, sort of awareness and discussion around anti-Black racism in the United States uh, um, due to, you know, a number of recent events in a very long history of police killings, of uh, uh, either police killings or justice system ignoring Mm. vigilante killings of black people in the United States. Um, And as I said, in the rest of the world. So so that's been, you know, and and universities have been putting out statements and saying they're going to do something, which we can talk about whether that's going to happen. But so we wanted to kind of talk about like, what I think we previously did an episode on like, how are we reacting to the pandemic back in, in, I think it was April. And now it's like, what's coming next um, with, with the, everything that's going on. It just feels like, I guess maybe I'll start this by saying, I saw a tweet the other day. I realized like, this is not true for everybody, but between that and just like the, also the state of politics in the United States. um, So, you know, this was a tweet from someone that was like, it feels like things are broken in a deeper way than they usually are. Um, And like I said, I I say that knowing that I think for a lot of people, if we're talking about racism in particular, a lot of people are like, nope, I, you know, this is, this is my community's existence a a lot of the time, but, but at least for, for some people, you know, something feels like a, deeper set of structural changes and uncertainty are coming. And, and this fall is going, even though we started with social distancing in the spring, this fall feels like in a lot of ways, it's maybe the beginning of something really different. I've had, uh, I guess, a lot of different thoughts about my um, like role as an, like an academic or basically my professional life um, as we're going through all of these things. I mean, in some ways, the, the the 
I think there are interesting things to talk about when it comes to coronavirus, like the the changing form of um, classes. And I guess we'll spend some time talking about that. Um, when it comes to uh, things like um, the protests and, um, and anti-Black racism, those things are making me feel right now. So I think they're making me value um, my role as a teacher more than usual, and maybe my role as a researcher less. Not that this has to be the way you interpret these things, but for me right now, so actually I just started teaching a class um, in the summer. Um, So I'm doing like a one month online class. And it's like being, being a teacher right now and having like a group of 16 students at Alabama um, and being able to like talk to them about what is going on and hear what they think um, and have constructive conversations about these things seems like uh, really like valuable to me. And and I don't mean like I'm teaching these kids so much. Like I just feel like we we all get a lot out of these conversations. Um, And it's clear that the students really want to be really want to be talking about these things. And I think a seminar format Um, is like a really nice place to have that opportunity. Um, So I'm like appreciating. Sorry to interrupt. What's the class? What's the actual topic of the class? (laughs) So it's new for me. And basically the topic of the class is like, you are not objective. Um, So we read like a lot of papers about um, like subjectivity. And we also are, we're reading some things that are like focused on politics and some things that are focused on race and um, some things that are focused on science um so a lot of like yeah like biases and implicit processes and stuff like that um so uh but in in general sometimes these things just like come up as like examples and then we end up spending some time talking about them um so i've been feeling that and then um yeah maybe because my research doesn't have like many obvious connections to what's going on and and those things I, th- I feel like it's easy to feel like the importance of my usual like work is, is sort of like dwarfed um and it's hard to uh get as excited about a typical project um than I would otherwise um yeah. but yeah I don't know what do you guys think part, part of why I asked about the topic of the class so I'm teaching uh, a class called scientific thinking which I taught in the spring so it's our kind of research methods for people entering the major. It's 150 students, so it's a big lecture class. I made a decision in the spring, which I'm not sure in retrospect was the right decision, but I, as I was planning it, like it was right after social distancing lockdown happened. And I decided not to really work the pandemic into the class. And the, the reason was it's such a large class that I can't really help students process things. And I I knew just statistically that there's going to be all kinds of things going on in people's lives. And for some students, like having to have a class where you're talking about things that might be affecting you personally, where you have no space to process that might not be so great. So I decided like I could have made it all about like this week we're talking about randomized experiments. And so we're going to talk about this, you know, randomized trial on masks or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, And I decided not to do that. I may, I may change for the fall, how I approach it. And I've been thinking a lot also about um, uh, trying to, you know, thinking about ways to incorporate research on racism into the class. I mean, one obvious example is like, what examples do I use when I teach different concepts, when I teach about measurement or random Mm -hmm. randomized experiments or whatever else? you know, if nothing else to communicate to students, like this is a thing that psychology studies. Cause I think I often, in the past, I've often gone with like kind of toy examples, you know, like my go-to for an experiment is like, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, an RCT where you're comparing like cognitive behavioral therapy to a weightless control. I, I use that example a million times in class cause it's like, it's kind of a straightforward example, like does therapy work? Imagine, mm-hmm. so like, if you were going to do a study of this, you would assign half the people to get there, you know, all that stuff. Um, uh, yeah, and so I've, I've been thinking about like in the, con- so anyway, that was part of why I asked about the topic, because I think it's not necessarily just, 
obviously the, there's a lot of space within classes that are relevant specifically to racism or to health, you know, to talk about all the things that are going on in the world. But I don't think we necessarily have to limit our imagination to like, oh, I'm teaching a health psychology class, so I'll talk about the pandemic, or I'm teaching, you know, um, about subjectivity and objectivity, so I'll talk about the construction of race or whatever. Like, obviously those are relevant, but maybe like a research methods class or statistics class or a cognitive psychology class or whatever can, can sort of think about how to topically approach these issues too. Mm -hmm. Samin, are you teaching? Do you have any teaching coming up? Yeah, I'll be teaching a little bit. It's, it'll be my first semester at University of Melbourne, although I'm not in Melbourne because they're having an outbreak right now, so I'm still in Sydney. So I'll be teaching remotely, um, but just a couple of classes, not a whole, not the whole semester. And then next, our academic year, next year we'll start in February, I'll start teaching more then. So for this upcoming semester, which is our spring semester, I'll just, I just have to prepare a few lectures and I haven't it's research methods and I, I don't think I'm going to do anything fancy. I still have to learn like what the online course management system is at Melbourne and all of that. So I'm listening to you all and thinking, yeah, I can't handle even doing more than like just figuring out how to deliver a lecture at a new university in a new country with a new system and all that. Yeah. But as I was think, listening to you all, I was thinking like, I think for me, the equivalent isn't so much teaching right now, although I do want to incorporate it more in my teaching later. Um, but like editing and mentoring and other parts of my role where like, I feel like I haven't been, it's so hard. Like, I don't want to sound defensive or like I'm justifying it. I've just been taking shortcuts. Like we do what we can and then we like put off, oh yeah, I know I need to think more deeply about how to improve mm -hmm. this thing I'm responsible for on these dimensions that are not immediately, there's no deadline bearing down on us. Um, and so I've been trying to carve out more space to like, be more deliberate in how I take on those roles where it feels like just putting out fires and dealing with the most urgent things. And then that makes you a bad, makes you deal with these broader issues badly because they're not, they often don't feel like the most urgent thing. Um, so yeah, I think the same kinds of principles you guys are talking about with teaching, I think apply in these other roles as well. Yeah. I, you know, it feels like there are, and this is, this is just, in a lot of ways, the, you know, the challenges of what's going on right now is like, I look at what I do and teaching and service, I think, you know, it's more obvious than research, although mentorship and research, it's, it's relevant. But I, you know, I look especially at my teaching and service and I think about what are some things that I could, these kinds of changes I was talking about that, you know, could I more explicitly connect research methods to how you study racism, for example, those kinds of things. And so I, you know, I look for those little things, but when you start to think about the bigger systemic issues, um, you know, that's, that's where it starts to feel like you look at the problems, you say, what could I do about that? And everything connects to everything else. And when there's no additional resources coming in, and this is a big problem. This has been criticized a lot uh, with universities that they're like putting out these statements, but it's like, are they actually redirecting resources? I mean, I, I've had this conversation in my department about, you know, our, we have a diversity committee. Um, it's done really excellent work uh, um, recently. And, but like, it probably needs more resources to, to really start to address things. And that needs to be true across the board. And, you know, so you look at things like, I mean, I just, you know, I'm like stringing together like three different Twitter conversations I've seen, right? Where it's like, okay, we need more diverse editorial boards. That's, yes, that is true. But until we diversify faculty, we would be asking extra service from people who are members of underrepresented groups. So we need to diversify faculty. Okay, but in order to do that, we need, you know, to be training more people because at least when we're talking about in the United States, black, indigenous, and Latinx people, I know in social psychology, I've seen the numbers, there aren't, they're underrepresented in graduate school. So, so you need to start earlier. And then there's also the issue, well, you can't hire people into institutions that are racist and that aren't, are, aren't going to treat them equitably and support their career development. So you also need to change your tenure and promotion guidelines and your, your you know, so you start like, you start connecting all these ideas, each of which is really valid. 
and you you can end up feeling overwhelmed like well shit i I can't do fucking anything Mm -hmm. um you know i guess i guess i'll like you know add add a couple people to my syllabus and call it a day or whatever um uh and so it's really hard and it's you know it's it's like that's that's not a that's that's like not an accidental byproduct it's like racism is about the inequitable distribution of resources and so if the big institutions aren't going to change in really meaningful ways like how they're actually allocating resources people of goodwill are going to be working around the margins and uh um you know and not having the resources to to make lasting systemic changes mm-hmm. and it, yeah. and there's a self-selection effect which is the people that are willing to go in bo- above and beyond to do that are often people of color women or just people who care about these issues and the people who are like nope i'm just going to keep churning out papers and getting grants um they they their careers move along within the current system because that work is valued much more than service or than improving your teaching or than advocating within your institution for structural change. Yeah. I mean, I have those, like those thoughts too. And I do think that when you start thinking about like, how can we, um, yeah. How can we like address all of these problems at the, like the root of the problem, it becomes like very overwhelming but maybe like, I don't know, maybe you're, um, maybe this reflects like the decisions that I've made in the past, but I feel like for me, there's like a fair amount of low hanging fruit for like things that I could be doing differently. And it's because like I have been um, doing things wrong in the past. <laughs> um, so like there are like ways that I can be like making more of an effort in my department where it seems like um like there are like several people in my department who feel like it's like not the most inviting environment for people of color. Um, so like, that's like for me and you guys might not have this, but like for me, that's like extremely, uh, immediate, like there's immediate things that like I can do about that. And yeah, I feel like the way that I've structured my classes has like ignored a lot of opportunities and, Um, and I ignore a lot of opportunities in the past in my teaching. Like I don't take advantage of like the lectures in intro psych when I talk about, um, racism. I did like, I just like don't spend a lot of time on that stuff. So for me, like I definitely do feel overwhelmed when I think about it, like the kinds of things that you're just trying, like the, the diversifying editorial boards is a great example. It's like, and yeah, I mean, um, I thought about that too, when we were like talking about um, SIPs as an organization, it's like, you know, uh, some of the problems seem like very, like, it feels like hard to um, resolve things like representation right away. Um, but I also, f- I also feel like for me, there's like a lot of things that are sort of in my face. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, when I articulated that sort of chain of thinking that leads to despair, I'm not actually endorsing that. Like I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I probably should have, should have said that because I think I sounded like I was, but uh, no, I, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think, I think it's both, right? Like we, we have to be looking for opportunities to be one piece of bottom up change in the opportunities that are in front of us. Like, I think that's both important because it can actually make some difference and because it, it starts to, tr- it starts to change you when you make those small commitments then when you get the opportunity to be in a position to make bigger commitments, it's, it's changed you in some ways. Um, and so I think those things are, are important. And yes, there are, you know, and you can say like, okay, we're not going to like fix representation overnight, but we can start to put, put things into place that will make it possible to happen when the other pieces line up. We can, you know, if you change, if you find an, uh, uh, an unfair process, and you can make it more equitable and more, you know, providing opportunity more equitably, then yeah, okay, maybe the the pipeline into that process still hasn't been fixed, but when it does, it, you're not going to be like the next stage that, that sort of turns things backward or whatever. So no, I, I you know, I do agree. And I, I feel mm-hmm. the same way. Like I'm, I'm looking for opportunities in my teaching 
in my service. I mean, I think one thing, like I'm chair of my department's undergrad education committee and, and I'm like, okay, like let's look for, you know, as, as we sh probably should have been doing more of in the past, but, you know, let's look for, let's look at our curriculum through a lens of anti-racism and, and see what can we do better at. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, no, that's not going to be systemic change, but it can be, you know, uh, carving out a space, um, you know, and I mean, that's the other thing is like, I, you know, I feel like this work often we, you know, we create a diversity committee and then anytime any issue comes up, you say, Oh, give it to the diversity committee. It's like, no, like, I'm chairing an undergrad education committee. Anti-racism in undergraduate education is my responsibility. My, you know, colleague who's chairing, you know, the graduate education committee, you know, that's their responsibility. My colleague who's chairing admissions, that's their, and I, I feel my colleagues also view this this way, so I'm not, not subtweeting anyone when I say this, uh, uh, but like, that's, you know, that approach of like taking it as your responsibility and whatever you do is really important. It just, yeah. And so and maybe that's you... the antidote to the despair, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like when we find ourselves like I have recently a lot like wishing I had been learning and gaining expertise yeah. in this for months or years so that I wouldn't find myself like, oh, I don't have I can't do this. I need to hand it over to someone else because I can't do this. So now I'm trying to like spend some time every day reading on these things and educating myself. And yeah, so like I think, yeah, it's pathetic that it took this to 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 prioritize making time for it but it, it's a reflection of how we choose to spend our time and it, i mean especially those of us with, with a bigger platform how we choose to spend our time where we focus our attention who we amplify all of that it can the only way to address it is slowly over time like you can't just be like oh okay i'll spend a day fix you know dealing with yeah. this no it has to be like a crew over time you have to be consistent about it and that yeah so i mean i've been lucky that because of moving country and jobs and stuff i've had the space and perspective to reevaluate how I spend my time. And it's really, I think it's really easy to underestimate how slow and incremental that change has to be to be meaningful, right? To find yourself now when you, if you know, a year from now I'm chair of some curriculum committee or something like that, hopefully I'll be in a better position to feel like I have, yeah, expertise or something to, to speak about it and push for it. But if you yeah. feel like you don't, then that reflects the choices you've made. And that's what I'm finding out about myself now. Um, yeah, I feel that way as well. What do you guys think of what your, how you, your universities have responded to everything that's going on? I guess we could talk both. There, there's the pandemic and then there's racism and then there's the intersection of those. I don't know. I don't know which one I mean. You can think whatever. <laughs> I guess I had in mind more the, the racism, and, you know, um yeah like I, I assume everyone's university has put out a a very nice uh or n maybe not a very nice but has put out some kind of a statement um that may or may not mean anything uh but beyond statements do you see things happening or is it too soon i guess like in order to answer that question i would um i would want to have thought about it a little bit more first um so like to be honest, I didn't read my university's statement closely because I was like not expecting it to say a whole lot. Um, I think that like University of Alabama, like even this past year has, has shown that um, like it generally handles um, issues surrounding racism pretty poorly. So like we had like a scandal with our Dean of Students um, tweeting basically acknowledging systemic racism and then ended up um resigning immediately after um so like i don't really care so much about and and i know that you like pointed this out sanjay like that the statements like sort of um don't really matter in themselves but um yeah i mean i get and maybe another way to answer this is like i'll answer that question in, in a year or two years or something like that <laughs> Because it doesn't really yeah. matter what UA says now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, I do think there, there are some differences. There are better and worse statements, obviously. I think statements. Yeah. So my, my university president put out a statement sort of shortly right after the 
George Floyd's killing and the, the when the protest started that was I think really terrible <laughs> and he they used some language like he didn't explicitly say all lives matter but he said we need to recognize that black lives like all other lives matter. and I was like oh you did not just do that oh no uh but but you know so yes there are better and worse statements I think the better statements um understand the context that they're talking about and also the better statements include a commitment to action and accountability rather than just saying nice things about not liking racism or whatever mm -hmm. but you know i think i mostly agree with you that like the, the the proof is in the pudding um good statement or bad what matters is the the follow-through like do you see actual shifts in budget and priorities and do you see more than just like creation of some office that everyone pawns their problems off on and and that sort of thing so i'm, I'm kind of waiting to see that um i think my university has some sort of mixed record recently um it's done some good things and some I, but i think it's and and i don't i don't know i'm not in the room like yeah it must it must suck to be a, a university president who wants to make change right now because yeah. you've got all these constraints and pressures and whatever i don't assume that anybody is that person because i don't know and at the end of the day, if I'm not your friend, I don't care. Like if I'm your friend, I'll feel bad for you. If I'm not your friend, I just fucking care what you get done. Um, and that's, I'm not a friend with any university president, so I only care what they get done. But uh, um, yeah, you know, so, but it must be hard. Like you've got these donors who are, you know, retrograde old racists or just fragile white people or whatever. Yeah. And, and you can't, you know, you're like trying to figure out how to navigate that. but. Uh, yeah, I also don't feel bad for university presidents because they make a shit ton more money than I do. So they're paid to deal with that. So it's like, well, you know, if you want to septuple my salary, I'll put up with those people too. Yeah, and they signed up for the job. It's not yeah. like they were randomly yeah. chosen to become university presidents. Well, they were probably selected into the job for not being too radical. So we should yeah, do too much for them anyway. Mm -hmm. Most of them. Certainly there are exceptions that we should applaud when they happen. I feel like this could be a part one of two. <laughs> I feel like it could, yeah. We mostly, I mean, we we said, yeah, we 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 had way too much on our agenda for this episode. <laughs> we, we we sort of said, oh, we'll talk about like you know systemic racism and the global pandemic, uh, <laughs> how they're both affecting all of academia. Uh, you know, um, yeah, maybe we should come back to this in a future episode. But we've probably uh, exhausted our listeners by this point. Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's so much we haven't touched on. So don't take that as a sign that we're, we don't think it's important, but I do think we should maybe wrap up for today and then tackle the rest. Yes. Some of well, the thanks. rest another time. <laughs> yeah, Thank right. you listeners. If, if you've made it all the way to, through with us, uh, you've been listening to the Black Goat podcast and uh, we will talk with you again next time. Bye.